near the end of his life, the very last of the living apostles, the very last of those original disciples who followed Jesus, who, who were eyewitnesses to what he did and what he said. Near the end of his life, the last of the living apostles sat down and he began to write a book. It was a testimony of what he witnessed. The experiences he had following Jesus, learning from Jesus, listening to Jesus, seeing the power of Jesus displayed, seeing the character of Jesus in the face of crises in conflict, seeing the nature of who this man was and realizing he was more than just a man near the very end of his life. It was a man named John, probably a teenage kid, when he first started following Jesus, now old, and knowing he was about to die, decided to sit down, and he wrote a book, a biography of Jesus, and we have it today as something called the Gospel of John. It's called a gospel because the word means good news. It's a proclamation of good news, good news that John wants to share, that John wanted to leave behind knowing that with his voice, the final voices of the eyewitnesses were gone and an era and age would be gone forever so that for everyone who is to follow, wondering who is Jesus and the greater questions of who is God, what is he like, what does he want, what does he do? John writing down, let me tell you, all this school year, We've been going through this gospel, this biography of Jesus, written by the last living apostle named John. John in his gospel writes, he who saw it testifies to it, and his testimony is true. He knows that he speaks the truth, John writes, and he writes it so that you also may believe. Because for John, what he had to say, no better, what he discovered about Jesus was so much more than just telling a story of someone interesting from the past, but a very gateway to life with God life to the fullest itself. All the school year we've been going through the gospel of John, and today we come to its climax. We come to where the entire story has been heading. Jesus, brutally murdered, dead, and buried. But today against all odd, and to the surprise of all those around, no matter how many times Jesus tried to prepare them, 
today. The day that changes everything. Jesus risen from the dead. Let me read to you this final chapter of the Gospel of John today. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken, uh, uh, they've taken our Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. And at this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. But Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, in the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. 
Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the 12, well, he wasn't with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the, where, 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 where the spear went into his side, I am not going to believe this. No way. A week later, his disciples were in the house again. And Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And John writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I love that story. I love the way John tells that story. I love Jesus' sense of humor in that story, showing up in locked rooms going, hey guys, peace be with you. And I mean, can, can, does, it, does it get any grosser to, to like make someone believe than to say, put your hands into my hand and your hands to my side? That'll teach you for doubting right there, you know? So gnarly. But I love Jesus' sense of humor. I love the way he messes with Mary. I love that. He's risen from the dead, and it's like, we've got to keep this joke going a little bit longer, right? Because there's nothing funnier than watching people in their misery when you know they're going to come out of it. Would you agree? Well, I, I think so. Anyway. <laughs> but bottom line, here is the story. Jesus rose from the dead. Bottom line, this is what the story says. Jesus was dead, stone cold dead. Not partially dead, not mostly dead. Stone cold dead. John was there and he saw it. He saw him nailed. He saw him lifted up. He saw him cry out. He saw him give up his spirit. He saw that soldier jab that spear into his side. He saw the body taken down. Jesus was dead. And the last thing that they ever expected was that he was coming back from the dead, because that kind of thing just doesn't happen. Would you agree? And there, very early on the first day of the week, against all odds and against all expectation, 
Jesus risen from the dead. And here's why it matters. Because when someone you love dies, you lose them forever. And it rips a hole in your heart. When someone you love dies, you lose them. No matter what sentimental schlock people want to share about how they're with you in your heart, give me them in the flesh by my side any day and keep your sentiments in your own heart. Death is miserable. Call it what it is. It's evil and wrong and dark. And when someone you love dies, it rips you to shreds. And for most of you in this room, I don't have to explain what I mean. So when someone you love rises from the dead, it requires no explanation. Because something has happened which defies all odds, which just doesn't happen. When the hope beyond hope beyond hope actually occurs and someone that you have said the permanent goodbye to is there alive and breathing again, that is enough in its own right. It requires no theological explanation. It requires no grand scheme to be known. It requires nothing beyond Jesus is back. And they loved Jesus. Did you hear it? Coming out of the story, Mary loved Jesus. She didn't need a five-point theological map of the significance of what it means. Jesus is back, and that was enough. Did you hear it coming out of the story? Simon Peter and John, they loved Jesus. And when there was a glimmer of hope that something happened that was strange, they bolted to that tomb. Because that's what you do in times like these. And there's Jesus that night standing in their midst. He's back. Our friend, he's back. The one we love, he's back. The one who loves us, he's back back because if it's a story about people in relationship with each other coming back from the dead man that's enough that is more than enough it is sufficient it doesn't need anything more than that it is just pure joy wrapped in surprise and disbelief and elation that what I thought could never occur is here before me. He was dead in the most brutal of ways, and he's back, baby. He is back. Jesus is alive again, and that, that is what John's story is about. And for John, truly, that is enough. That carries its own weight by itself. Because when someone was dead and is now alive and they mean everything to you, who cares what other people have to say? Who cares what other people think? I saw him. 
and death has got no grip on him anymore. But for some of us, that's not enough. And quite honestly, because we really don't know Jesus. Or if we do, we don't really love him like that. And even if we say we kind of love him like that, oftentimes it tends to be more transactional, you know? What can you do for me? And so the story of Easter then becomes, well, what's in it for me? Because we tend to be transactional in our relationships, don't we? We're friends with people because they make us happy, because they tell us what we want to hear, because they're there when I need them. We go to our parents when we need something from them. We marry people because they're good looking or because they bring us some sense of security or we think that they'll make our life easier and better in some way. Yeah, I think we're pretty transactional in most relationships if we're going to be truly honest with ourselves. No one has ever had to convince me of the reality of sin. I just see it and hear way too much and everything around and the way that we just kind of treat each other this way. And so why would it be any different with Jesus? Because oftentimes we're grieving our own losses so much or wrapped up in our own lives too much that, that a dead guy in Palestine coming back to life, while interesting, just isn't enough to do it. But Jesus rose from the dead anyway. And if I'm speaking to you today, why does it matter? Well, it's because Jesus offers something called life. And I don't have to explain to you what life is. You know what life is. You know what death is. You know it full well. But Jesus offers a different kind of life, a better kind of life, a new kind of life, almost like a life that's the way life is supposed to be, that life as we know it now is just a mere shadow of. And John will call it eternal life or everlasting life depending on the, 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 the flavor of Bible that you're reading. You see it in Jesus' teachings. You see Jesus talking about it all the time. He says things like, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes will, in me will live even though he dies. You see famous statements like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You know this one? Have you heard this one? Right? Yeah? It's kind of a favorite out there. Finish it with me, if you know it, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have, there it is, right there, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know what the problem with the phrase eternal life is? The phrase everlasting life is? We think about it in a way that I don't think does justice to the way that Jesus and John intended. We think about it as a life, a disembodied kind of life that just kind of lasts forever, floating in some kind of, you know, with a disembodied 
God. But that doesn't do justice to the kind of life that Jesus is describing. I like this way of putting it better. Life of the age to come. That when we come across this phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have life of the age to come. Because see, in Jesus' way of thinking, in John's way of thinking, in the Bible's way of thinking, all of history and all of destiny, all time as we know it, past, present, and future, can be divided into two great epochs or two great ages. This age and the age to come. And these ages couldn't be more different from one another. This age in which we live and people have lived since the fall of Adam and Eve is an age marked by hurt and suffering and death. It's an age marked by things that are not the way that God intended. It's an age that is broken, an age that's corrupt, An age that's corrupted and perverted and distorted from God's intentions is an age that's been vandalized. It is an age that is a shadow of life as God intended. Whether you're healthy, wealthy, and wise, or poor, stupid, and sick, you know full well what I mean, everyone from youngest to oldest has experienced what they know in their heart to be off and distorted and wrong in this age in which we live. It takes that long in 10 seconds of thought to look around the world in which we live and see cruelty upon cruelty and hurt upon hurt and greed and selfishness and lust and pride and selfish gain and interned hearts and calloused people and bitter minds and harsh lips It takes just a moment longer of looking within to go something, something is just not right in me. Where is this coming from, this thought, this desire? Why am I like this? Why do I keep doing this? Why can't it be different? Why do I find myself in it again and again? We live. We live in a broken, fallen age. Would you agree? But see, God paints a picture. And it's a picture he's painted from the beginning. 
a picture of a different kind of life, a picture of a different way of being. And the message of the Bible is God holding out an image, a picture of a time when God is going to come and, 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 and correct the wrongs of this world, to turn that which is wrong into right. A rescue operation of the largest degree. An age of life, of goodness and wholeness and every great thing that emanates from the heart of God himself. A picture of an age to come. As the scriptures will say, when there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. An age when people will beat their swords into plowshare. An age. An age of milk and honey. An age when no one needs to be taught about who is God or have it written down because God will pour their spirits on their heart and they will know him. Oh, the Bible is filled with image after image, picture after picture, teaching after teaching, prophecy after prophecy of the life to come in this age. And here we stand on the first day of the week and the tomb is empty, and Jesus is risen from the dead. Why does it matter? Because it is nothing short of the invasion of the age to come into this age. God is breaking in, and Jesus is the first witness that that new age of new life where death no longer has a hold is here. It's here. The new age to come is here. God has brought it in and Jesus is living testimony that the tomb is empty. And this age is being undone. Jesus has risen. Why does it matter? Because he comes to bring the life of the age to come here to you today. John says these things are written so that you may believe. That you may see Jesus' resurrection for what it is and by believing not in some day to come after you die, but here today. Begin to experience the life of the age to come by believing in him. Have life, John will say. Life. In Jesus' name. Everything Jesus has done that John has recorded in his gospel has been pointing to this turning water to wine, a sign of the coming age, helping the lame walk and the blind see, signs of the coming of the age, the dead coming out of their tombs, Jesus walking on water, 
a new creation ushering its way in. I love what John does in his story, reminding us again and again that what we are witnessing is happening in a garden. Did you catch it? That the tomb was in a garden. He says it again, that it was in a garden near where Jesus was buried. That Mary, in seeing the empty tomb, mistakes Jesus for a gardener. What odd details to include. Until you remember that it all began in a garden. That it all began in a garden. God creating the world as he intended. And now we find ourselves in the garden again with the new creation coming our way. In seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. Seven signs Jesus gives in the Gospel of John, but now we stand on the eighth day. The first day of the new week. The eighth sign, the first sign of the new creation that death has lost its victory. That is Easter. And that is why it matters. That whatever grief you're wrapped up in, Whatever the things of this life that consume you, Jesus has come into the middle of it to bring a new life in a new way. And John hopes you'll believe it. He hopes you'll dare to believe it, to dare to trust that what Jesus says and Jesus has done is true because what John knows is that it is in Jesus, in Jesus alone, that we find that life freely offered, that life of the age to come. And our hope here for you today is that life, that new birth, that kind of life of the age to come would be yours today. Christ is risen. I'm going to invite the band to come back on stage. We're going to sing a song here, and it's just like an awesome one. I like it anyway. That's a good song, too. You know, when Jesus talks about these two ages, he talks about two different kings as well. He'll talk about the ruler of the prince of this age, the ruler of the prince of this world. seeking to bring oppression and suffering and death. 
And he seems to rule and it seems we're inevitable in the end to do anything to resist him. Jesus will call him a thief and a liar who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus says a new king is here. A new king is here. And the prince or the ruler of this world ain't got nothing on him. Jesus invades and says, do your worst. And I will do mine. Because not even in my death, Jesus says, can you defeat me? And you will rule over these people and this world no more. So let's rise, let's sing, and let's embrace that hope that Jesus brings.